0: to learn. On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help
1: us grow in the Word. People wonder what their purpose in life is. Well, I can tell you this, that as believers, our great purpose in life is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. In other words, with our entire being, our mind, our emotions, our will. And in loving the Lord our God, uh, that also involves loving the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way. And this is why we're commanded to grow in our knowledge of him by Peter, because as we come to know him better, we're going to love him more and more and more. And can I just tell you something? I mean, if there's one one thing, uh, one standout thing that will encourage uh, any pastor's heart, probably more than anything else, it's spiritual growth. I mean, specifically growth in in your knowledge and your love for the Lord Jesus that leads to meaningful change in your lives and your families and your marriages and in the church. I mean, there, there is almost nothing quite as encouraging as seeing people grow in their knowledge and love for Jesus and then just seeing the practical outworking of that in their lives. I mean, this is literally the reason uh, most pastors do what they do. And I want all of us to love him more than we already do. And this is why we've taken a break from Ephesians to do this series, Who is Jesus? And we began our series in John chapter 1, the first 18 verses, looking at what John had to say in regard to who Jesus is. And then last week, we took a very, very brief look at what others in that day said about Jesus. And then we began looking at what Jesus said about himself, first in John 4 and and then John 8, in these two passages respectively. Our Lord declared to the Samaritan woman at the well that he was the Messiah, and to the scribes and Pharisees that he was the I Am, the eternal God. And then we began looking at the seven metaphorical I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John, which further our understanding of Jesus and and his ministry in the world. In John 6, we saw that Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. And of course, I am, in saying that, he is declaring that he is uh, the eternal God. That's the name. I am is the name, the Old Testament covenant name of God. So in saying that, Jesus is declaring that he's God. So I am the bread of life, he said in John 6. And then in John 8, he declared, I am the light of the world. And this brings us to the third and fourth I am statements of Jesus in John chapter 10. So you can turn in your Bibles now to John chapter 10. And this is not going to be an exposition of the entire chapter. We're just kind of hitting the high points uh, around Jesus' I am statements. And there is a context to these verses in John chapter 10, and it's important for us to understand the context. You see, there's no break between John chapters 9 and 10. I mean, obviously, there's a chapter break. But that was inserted later. But there is no time gap or or break in thought between chapters 9 and 10. It's the same day, the same scene, the same people, and Jesus is responding to the same event. John chapter 9 was about the man who was born blind, and Jesus healed him by by giving him his physical sight. And then this man was interrogated by the scribes and Pharisees who insulted him and showed him nothing but disdain, and then they excommunicated him. But following that, Jesus sought this man out and found him and also gave him spiritual sight. And this man took his place at the feet of Jesus as a worshiper. And then in verses 39 to 41 of chapter 9, Jesus again engaged some of the Pharisees who were nearby listening in on his conversation with the formerly blind man. And in chapter 10, Jesus continues to engage the same hostile Pharisees while his disciples, the formerly blind man, along with the crowd who had gathered, all listen in. And so in verse 1 of chapter 10, when Jesus begins by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, he is speaking directly to the religious leaders who had just excommunicated the blind man, or the formerly blind man. And John 10 gives us a symbolic picture of what has just happened in John chapter 9. It also affirms the blindness of the Pharisees who don't understand this picture. In verses 1 to 6 of chapter 10, without explicitly stating that he is the true shepherd, Jesus contrasted himself as the true shepherd with the false shepherds, the religious leaders of Israel whom he referred to as thieves and robbers. Men who had no authority and no right and no ownership of the sheep. They were men who did not enter the sheepfold the legitimate way, the, the right way, through the door, that is, through faith in Christ and appointment by Him. But Jesus is the true shepherd, the rightful shepherd of the sheep, appointed and sent by His heavenly Father to come in and, and call His sheep and to take them in into the green pastures of the new covenant and the blessings of salvation. And Jesus calls his own by name and leads them out, and, and they follow him because they know his voice, a stranger they will not follow. They follow Jesus, they hear his voice, they know him, and they follow him. That's really a, just a quick summary of verses 1 through 6, or 1 through 5, and in verse 6 we read, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So the Pharisees didn't understand the spiritual truth that Jesus was telling them using this figure of speech. Because in spite of all of their knowledge of the Old Testament, and they knew it like the the back of their hand, in spite of all of their biblical knowledge, the Pharisees did not know God, and they certainly did not know the voice of the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ. And now in verses 7 to 10 is where we're going to pick it up. Jesus continues with the sheep-shepherd imagery, but with, with a little different twist. He shifts from the more general third person, you know, he, him, his, to the very specific first person singular, I, me. And he does this because he is making it very clear from here on that he is speaking of himself. And he makes it very clear that he is the only way of salvation. And because the Pharisees didn't understand his first figure of speech. I mean, we might have expected Jesus to give them some kind of an explanation of his function as shepherd, but instead of any kind of an explanation, look what look what Jesus says in verse 7. Jesus said again to them, truly, truly, I say to you, and and we know that when Jesus says truly, truly, this alerts us to the fact that what is about to follow is very, very important. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's saying to the scribes and Pharisees and, and others who are just standing around listening, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. The word door is used metaphorically in other places in the New Testament, but this is the only passage in which Jesus himself is seen as the door. Now you might know, but in case you don't, a sheepfold in those days was a large walled enclosure with with a single opening in the wall that was used as a door. And there was only one door to the fold. And so sheep and shepherds alike could only enter by this door. There was no other way in or out. And often they would hire a gatekeeper or an under-shepherd to guard the gate or the door at night. But sometimes the shepherd himself slept in the opening of the sheepfold to guard the sheep. And that meant that no one could enter or leave except through the shepherd. It's an amazing picture. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, the late G. Campbell Morgan, told of a conversation that he had with George Adam Smith, who was one of the greatest Old Testament scholars uh, at that time from Britain. And and, uh, Smith had spent a lot of time in the Middle East. And Smith told Morgan of a meeting that, uh, told of meeting a shepherd uh, in the Middle East who showed him the fold where the sheep were led at night. And this fold consisted of four walls with a single way in. And Smith spoke to the shepherd and said, I I only see one way in. Yes, said the shepherd, only one way, that's the door. And he pointed to the opening in the wall and said, when the sheep are in there, they are perfectly safe. But Smith said, well, there's no door. The shepherd said, I am the door. And he wasn't a Christian man, rather he was just a simple Arab shepherd. But he was using the same language that Jesus used. And he explained further, when the light has gone or at night and all the sheep are inside, I lie in that open space and no sheep ever goes out but across my body and no wolf comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. And here in John chapter 10 Jesus uses the metaphor of a door for himself. He says, I am the door. And there's an emphasis on the personal pronoun I. I am the door. In essence, Jesus is saying I and I alone am the door. And that is further emphasized by the fact that Jesus says not a door, but the door. I am the door, the only door. And what Jesus says here is, is really very similar to John chapter 1, verse 51, where he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And there in, in, in chapter 1, using the imagery of Jacob's dream, Jesus is saying that he himself is the ladder. In other words, he himself is the link between heaven and earth. He is the true basis of access to heaven. And it's the same thought expressed in John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there Jesus says that he is God's only mediator, that it's only through him that men may enter into a relationship with God and find their way to heaven. Well, Jesus is saying the same thing here, only he's using the words, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus is stating that he alone is the only door of salvation, the only doorway into the kingdom of God. No one can come to the Father except through him. There is no other way. There's no other way. Yet many people today think there are different ways uh, of salvation. You know, I mean, a hey, one way is as good as the next. All roads lead to heaven. Uh, that, that really is the mentality of, of, of the majority of people today. In their minds, it doesn't really matter if you're a, a Muslim, a Mormon, a Buddhist, a Baptist, a Hindu, a, an ignorant heathen, a Presbyterian, or an Episcopalian. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. I mean, unbelievers are okay with Jesus as long as you say Jesus is a door to God or a way. I mean, they have no problem with that. That's fine as long as all religions lead to God and and there are many doors and, and many ways. But when you draw the line that Jesus himself drew and insists on, you know, you insist on, no, Jesus Christ is the only door, the only way to heaven, that's when people begin to get angry. Because they do not like the fact that Jesus is the door, the exclusive only way to God, and he is. But you see, the whole of Scripture stresses the fact that there is only one way to eternal life. One way. And Jesus said, I am the door. You know, one of the greatest figures of salvation in the Old Testament is Noah's Ark. And how many doors did the Ark have? Just one, right? There was one door in the Ark, and that was the figurative way of expressing that there was only one way of deliverance from the flood. And in his first letter, Peter speaks of how that is an illustration of salvation. Another Old Testament example, the the tabernacle. Probably uh, uh, the the greatest visual picture of salvation in the Old Testament. Well, how many doors uh, went into the tabernacle? How many doors were there into the tabernacle? Just one. There was one door. And all of this was by God's design to stress the exclusiveness of the salvation that he provides. And so, loved ones, if we're clear about anything, let's be clear about this. There are not different ways of salvation. There are not many ways to heaven. There is one way. Jesus alone is the door. And you could say that he is the living door. Just as the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the living way, so he is the living door. He is the door to life and a door that has life. You could also say that Jesus is a a low door. In other words, all who enter in by this door must stoop down. And by that I mean they must humble themselves before God and come as poor and needy beggars. Otherwise, there's no getting in because the prideful cannot enter by this door. Jesus is also, you could say, the narrow door. There's only room for for us to enter alone. We can't carry anything in with us. And so we cannot bring our good works and self-righteousness in with us. We, We must be stripped of all of these things or we will never enter in by this door. And there's no taking of our sins and our lusts in with us at this door. To enter this door, it is nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Jesus is the living door, the low door, the narrow door, and he is the only door because besides him there is no other. He is the one and only door. As Peter said, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Just as there was only one door into the ark and only one door into the tabernacle, so Jesus Christ is the only door to salvation and God's presence. And the Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2.18, through him, through Jesus, we both... Jew and Gentile have access in one spirit to the Father. And so this is a reminder to us all that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not one option among many options. And it's also a reminder that Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one, absolutely no one, comes to the Father except by him. And I know that today this is not popular, nor is it politically correct, but oh well, because it's the truth of God's word. And so Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. He's declaring that he himself is the door of access through whom all must pass if they're going to belong to God's flock. I mean, there's just simply no other entrance. He and he alone is and always will be the only door to salvation and all of the blessings that it brings. And therefore, Jesus says in verse 8, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. And Jesus, no doubt, had in mind all of the false prophets and shepherd in Israel's past, but in the context, he was referring primarily to the religious leaders of that day who were interested in only providing for themselves and protecting themselves, because they didn't love the sheep. They didn't love the people. They didn't come to do good to the sheep, nor did they they care for the sheep. They exploited them and they abused them. They were thieves and robbers. They were soul destroyers, men who were shutting people out from the kingdom of God. But Jesus said, My sheep will not listen to them. And in contrast to the thieves and robbers he was speaking to, Jesus said in verse 9, If you'll notice, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and we'll go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus just reiterates the vital truth of verse 7. I am the door. He is the divinely ordained way to God for the world, and people must enter in by this door or stay outside because they cannot demand another door. They can throw all the fits they want, but they cannot demand another door. There was one. There was only one door into the presence of the Father, and Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, what? He will be saved. He will be saved. But what does Jesus mean by saved? I mean, it's a rescue word, isn't it? But what is it that Jesus rescues us from? What is it that he saves us from? Well, let's think for a moment of the context of this passage. Sheep. And sheep have enemies, external enemies that seek to devour and destroy them. Well, Jesus came to rescue us from, number one, the the enemy of the world. And the world seeks to seduce us and and drag us down into its life, its mindset, which has absolutely no room for God or the things of God. So the Lord Jesus came to rescue us from the world with its deceitful appeal. But not only do we need to be rescued from the world, but also from the power and dominion of the prince of the world, Satan. I mean, Jesus came to deliver us from the domain of darkness and to bring us into, into his glorious kingdom. But then thirdly, we also need to be saved from ourselves. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, in particular, we need to be saved and delivered from the utter foolishness of thinking that by our own unaided efforts, we can make ourselves right and acceptable and presentable to God. The Lord Jesus Christ came to save us from that damning delusion. And then fourthly, we need rescuing from God or His wrath will consume us. The Scripture says we are saved from the wrath to come. And God could no more bring an unforgiven sinner into heaven than he could make himself no longer God. We need rescuing from God himself. In other words, we need to be saved from the wrath of God. You know, as Paul said in Romans 1, for the wrath of God is, is being revealed. It's now being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So the wrath of God is being revealed right now. He's withdrawing his hand. We're suffering God's uh, wrath of abandonment as a nation. Individuals are suffering that as God gives them over. And every unbeliever is just storing up for themselves more and more wrath. Every sin, every sin, more wrath, more wrath, more wrath. Just storing up for themselves wrath upon wrath for the day of wrath. And when God saves us, he saves us from the wrath to come, the wrath of God. And make no mistake about it, the wrath of God is coming. But the good news is that all of Christ's sheep will be saved from the world, Satan, ourselves, and from the wrath of a holy God. See, the Lord's precious sheep will experience God's love, forgiveness, and salvation. And Jesus said, if you look back at the verse, they will go in and out and find pasture. Well, going in and out is a Hebrew expression which describes a life that is absolutely secure and safe. You know, if the country was under siege, people had to stay inside the city walls, but when they were at peace and the ruler was upholding law and order, well, the people were were free to come and go as they wished. And the salvation of God uh, brings us into the fellowship of God and the family of God, into the the sheepfold of God where there is the security and comfort of knowing that God loves us with an everlasting love. And as His sheep, we will go in and out freely, always having access to God's blessing and protection and, and never fearing any harm or danger. And not only will His sheep go in and out, Jesus said they will find pasture. They'll find pasture. And this speaks of God's gracious provision for the nourishment of his sheep. We, of course, almost immediately think of Psalm 23, right? I mean, the Lord is my shepherd, I, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The pastures speak not only of food, but of rest as well. May God's true sheep find pasture satisfying pastor as the Lord feeds them on his word. And this picture of, of, of Christ as shepherd is just an amazing picture. And so the sheep that enter through the fold, through the Lord Jesus Christ, will be able to go in and out and have uh, all of their needs met. The Lord is our, our shepherd. And Jesus' purpose for his sheep is radically opposed to the purpose of false shepherds. Look at verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so in utter contrast to the false shepherds who, like their father the devil, came only to steal and kill and destroy the sheep, Jesus came for the benefit of the sheep. He came that they may have life, spiritual and eternal life, and not only life, but a more abundant life. I mean, there's nothing cramping or, or restricting about life for those who enter into Christ's fold. I mean, Jesus came that they may have life abundantly. And the word abundantly describes something that goes far beyond merely what is necessary. But abundant life is not an especially long life. An Abundant life is not necessarily an easy, comfortable life. Abundant life is not having an abundance of material goods. It's it's not about having more stuff. It's about having peace, having joy. It's about having Christ Himself. The abundant life is the the life of, of soul satisfaction that comes when you know that the Lord is your shepherd. The abundant life is life in fellowship with God. It's life knowing that God is for you and not against you. It is life knowing that your sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and you bear them no more. It's the life of knowing that God is your Father and that you are His son or His daughter. It's, It's the life that knows that you have laid up Uh, You have laid up for you an eternal hope in the heavens that that God has prepared for you and all who believe a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And at the heart of it all is the fact that we are united with Jesus. We're we're joined with Christ, the Son of God's love. And and He is the life, as He'll tell us in in chapter 14. And, And the abundant life He will give us is Himself. Himself. In essence, Jesus doesn't give us things or or blessings. He he gives us himself. And in himself, he gives us all all things. In, In the knowledge of him and in knowing him, we have everything that pertains to life and to godliness. We have Christ. We have the abundant life. We have all we need for living this life. Yet, why is it that so many Christians live like spiritual paupers and spiritual homeless people? Why is it that we don't draw upon all the resources that we have in Christ? And for most people, it's not a lack of knowledge, it's a lack of will. Because they don't want to do what he says to do. They want to get the results that he promises without doing what he says that we're to do. We want to live our life our way. But Jesus came that men might have life and have it abundantly. I mean, look, we live in a world where people are, are aching for life. I mean, We live in a world where people spend almost all their waking hours looking for life. A world where people spend much of their, their hard-earned money looking for life. Abundant, soul-satisfying life. Just looking for some kind of fulfillment and they can't find it. They can't find it no matter where they look, no matter what they try, no matter how high and low they search. They cannot find the life and the soul satisfaction and fulfillment that they're looking for because it can't be found here. I mean, people are running around all over the place trying this and trying that and going here and going there and and the lack of contentment is is just unbelievable. They're always looking for life and, and satisfaction and fulfillment, but they're looking in all the wrong places. Some of you know what it is to look for satisfaction and fulfillment in the world because you spent a good many years of your life looking and searching for it. But like the old Rolling Stones song, you couldn't find no satisfaction, right? Not real, true, deep satisfaction in your soul. It was there all along. But you were looking for it here below. In all that the world was offering. But it's only found above. You know, you were looking for it in the creature when it's only to be found in the in the Creator. And the ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in life, the abundant life is only found in a relationship and fellowship with the one who alone can give abundant life, the one who said, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door. I mean, who in their right mind? Who in their right mind would turn their back on and reject abundant, deep soul-satisfying, abundant life? Who would do that? Many. Most. Because that's what sin does. It blinds to the truth. If the Lord Jesus is your Lord and and your Savior, you're a child of the King, a child of of the living God, and you have everything. You, You have the abundant life, a life of deep soul satisfaction and contentment in Jesus himself. And that is why it is so important for us to know uh, know him more and more so that we will love him more and more. Because the more and more then we will know that that soul satisfaction, that that abundant life. the life uh, The abundant life he comes to give us is himself. Himself. And now in verses 11 to 15, Jesus develops the sheep shepherd imagery in a third way. And now he very plainly states that he himself is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep in contrast to the religious leaders who he refers to now as, as hired hands. Jesus says in verse 11, I am. There's that old covenant name of God. He's declaring, I I am God. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. So this is the fourth now uh, of the I am sayings in John's gospel and probably the most well known, perhaps one of the most beautiful. And it points back to the true shepherd described in chapter 10, verses 2 to 5. And literally, it reads, I am the shepherd, the good one. As if to say, in contrast to all the bad ones, I am the shepherd, the good one. And the word good, which Jesus uses here, it has several shades of meaning, but at the heart of it is the idea of attractiveness. It means to be beautiful, to be magnificent, to be attractive, to be excellent on all levels, in all aspects. And so as Jesus confronts the Pharisees, these false shepherds, known for their legalistic harshness, selfishness, and self-centeredness, he is saying, in contrast to you, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd who has come to shepherd the flock of God with love and tenderness and with mercy and grace. I mean, Jesus is not just a shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He is the one who is preeminently excellent, the one who is above all shepherds. He is the shepherd, the good one, the the beautiful one. Years ago, Spurgeon caught the feeling of this when he said, There is more in Jesus, the good shepherd, than you can pack away in a shepherd. He is the good, the great, the chief shepherd, but he is much more. Emblems to set him forth may be multiplied as the drops of the morning, but the whole multitude will fail to reflect all his brightness. Creation is too small a frame in which to hang his likeness. Human thought is too contracted, human speech too feeble to set him forth to the full. He is inconceivably above our conceptions, unutterably above our utterances. That's our shepherd, the good one, the beautiful shepherd. And why is he so beautiful? Well, uh, primarily because of who he is. And also because of the way he knows us, relates to us, calls us by name, and, and sees to our every need. And why is he so beautiful? Because He he's the door. And when we go in, we find salvation and protection. when we go out, we find pasture and abundant life. He is the good shepherd. There's a verse, it's in Isaiah, and I can't remember the reference, but a man that I... I Knew he's in heaven now. Put it to music, and it was it was beautiful when he sang it. But the verse says, "He will lead his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young." That's our shepherd. He shepherds and cares for his flock even to the laying down of his own life. Look at verse eleven. Look back at the verse, I am the good shepherd. And then he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, in that day, a shepherd's life could at times be dangerous, I mean, very much so. I mean, there were wild animals such as lions and bears and wolves. They they were common in the countryside of Judea. There was also the threat from thieves and robbers. And so being a faithful shepherd in that day uh, involved being willing to risk your life to protect and defend the sheep. And no doubt there, there were shepherds who died while protecting their flocks. But when they died, it was, it was always unintended. It was, it was an accident because actual shepherds planned to live for their sheep, not die for them. But when Jesus speaks of himself as the good shepherd, he says the good shepherd what? Lays down his life for the sheep. A good shepherd most often did not give his life for the sheep, but the good shepherd, Jesus, came for that very reason. I mean, the death of an Israeli shepherd meant disaster for the sheep, but the death of the good shepherd means life. And Jesus came into the world with a divine purpose. He came into the world for the express purpose of laying down his life for his sheep to rescue us from sin and death and hell. And make no mistake about it, if you're not a believer, that's what's in store for you. More sin and then death and then hell. But Jesus came into the world to lay down his life for the sheep, to rescue us from sin and death and hell. And this was not something that was forced upon Jesus. No, he did so voluntarily. Uh, Later, a a few verses later in chapter 10, he's going to, speaking of his life, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And so the good shepherd voluntarily lays down his life for the sheep. Lays down his life for the sheep. And that little word for Uh, it doesn't come across in in English the way it needs to come across. Because Jesus chose a a particular Greek preposition that means in the place of. In the place of. In John's gospel, this word for is always found in the context of sacrifice. Whether referring to the death of Jesus, of Peter, or of a man prepared to die for his friend, it always occurs in the context of of sacrifice. And so what Jesus is saying is that the good shepherd loves the sheep and will sacrifice his life for the sheep. And the same phrase is, is used in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, where we read, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us In in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the sheep. That's the whole meaning of the cross. Jesus came into this world to die in our place, to rescue us from the sin that would damn us for all eternity and forever shut us out of the presence of God. And on the cross, all our sin and guilt and shame was laid upon Jesus Christ, and and he willingly died in our place and for our sin, taking the punishment we deserve so that we might be set free from sin and its penalty so that we might love, worship, and serve him. As the good shepherd, Jesus voluntarily, in obedience to the will of the Father, laid down his life for the sheep but this is the love and the care of the good shepherd he came to lay down his life for the sheep and if the sheep of god were worth the blood of the son of god well then they ought to be worth our untiring and unwavering love and concern and effort In contrast with a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep is the hired hand. Jesus said in verses 12 and 13, notice, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And so the true shepherd or the owner of the sheep, and sometimes they were the same, they, they cared about the sheep. I mean, it wasn't merely a, a job. Uh, for the true shepherd. It was his very life. I mean, he knew his sheep. He loved them. He tenderly cared for them, and he, and he did far more. He placed the interest of the flock above his own, and he protected and defended them with his very life. But the same is not true of a hired hand. The hired hand is interested in the money more than the sheep he's paid to care for. The hired hand doesn't have the investment in the sheep that the shepherd does, and so he's not about to risk his life for them. And the hired hand has nothing to lose if the sheep are scattered and killed because they don't belong to him in the first place. I mean, obviously Jesus is contrasting his own sacrificial love and care for his sheep with the false shepherds of Israel, whom he's already compared to strangers, robbers, and thieves. And now Jesus just adds the figure of a hired hand. I mean, it sounds a little better to be a hired hand who runs than a thief or a robber, but really the end is the same. Certainly, uh, some hired hands may uh, may have a shepherd's heart. But these men that Jesus is speaking to, they didn't care about the people. They led and taught them only for what they could get out of it in terms of position, power, authority, money, and fame. And they had just demonstrated their utter contempt and lack of concern for the true sheep in the way that they treated the man that Jesus the blind man that Jesus healed. Instead of defending Israel against the spiritual dangers which were all around, instead of watching over and caring for the flock of God, they focused all their attention on themselves and their own ambitions and, and place and privileges. I mean, they were exactly like the hireling when he sees the wolf coming. He abandons the sheep because he only cares about himself. But the reason Jesus mentions these hired hands is to show that he is not like that. He is not like them. He's not like them at all. He's not a hired hand. He is the good shepherd and the owner of the sheep. And the difference is that the hired hand loved his life more than the sheep, but Jesus loved the sheep more than he loved his own life. And when he sees the wolves coming, he doesn't leave the sheep to be destroyed. No, he fights, and he fights the wolves and saves the sheep. The good shepherd loves his sheep. He cares for them and lays down his life for them. And then in verse 14, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. What's Jesus actually saying here? Of course, he knows his sheep. And a good shepherd knows all of his sheep. And of course, Jesus knows his sheep perfectly because he's omniscient. He knows all things perfectly. But Jesus is saying much more than that here. And he knows them more than than merely knowing their names and who they are. I mean, this, this is not about knowing in the sense of information. In the Hebrew Scriptures, the verb to know often has the idea of love, of intimate knowledge and understanding. That's why in Genesis 4 we are told that Adam knew Eve, his wife doesn't mean Adam knew her name or knew who she was. It means that he knew her intimately, personally, physically. He knew her as his wife, as his own flesh. And here when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me, he is speaking of the intimate love that he has for his sheep and the intimate love his sheep have for him. He has an intimate relationship with his sheep. He, he knows them. He, he knows us intimately. And to begin with, our Lord, our, Lord, our Lord does know our names. We see the same truth in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, where Jesus said that he calls his own sheep by name and they follow him because they know his voice. He knows every one of his sheep in an intimate, personal way. And the sheep know him so well that they will not follow the voice of a stranger. But he also knows our natures, And while all sheep are alike in their essential nature, each sheep has its own distinctive characteristics. And our loving shepherd knows that and considers it as he cares for his flock. I mean, He knows exactly how to deal with each one of us. Oh, there she is again. I don't know what I'm going to do with her. Oh, there he goes. I'm going to have to whack him with the rod. No, he knows. He knows who we are. He knows how to deal with each one of us. Or it could be, oh, there's that wounded sheep. I need to dress its wounds and and hold it close to my chest and love it, care for it, see to its healing. He knows how to deal with each one of us. And because he knows our natures, he also knows all of our needs. And quite honestly, often we don't even know our own needs. Psalm 23 is just a beautiful, poetic description of how our good shepherd cares for his sheep. And as he cares for us, you know, we get to know our shepherd better. And the good shepherd knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. We get to know him better by listening to his voice through the word of God and by experiencing his daily care. So as we follow him, we learn more about him. We learn to love him and trust him even more. I mean, he loves his own, and he shows that love in the way that he cares for us. You see, we have a a shepherd who knows us through and through. I mean, just like shepherds know their sheep inside out, he knows all of us inside out. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our sin. I mean, there's nothing in our lives that might suddenly surface and startle him and and diminish his love in any way. It's not like something's going to pop up in our lives. He's going to go, oh, I didn't know that. You're out of here. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. The Lord is not ashamed to call us his sheep. And he's not ashamed to be my shepherd. He's not ashamed to be your shepherd. He knows us perfectly, completely. He knows our feelings. He knows our fears. He knows our every thought. He knows every thought that has ever passed through our minds. He knows our thoughts at this very moment, and yet he loves us. That's amazing. I mean, we have such a great shepherd, such a good shepherd. I know my own, he says. And then he says, My own, know me. My own, know me. Let me ask you something. What is the primary characteristic of a true believer? What's the primary characteristic of a true believer? Well, you remember when Jesus restored Peter? He said three times, Simon, do you love me? He knew Peter believed in him. But he asked Peter, do you love me? In other words, Peter, do you understand that the one thing I look for in my sheep is that they love me, that they cherish me? I mean, think of it. Here in our text is a son of God who needs nothing and needs no one, and he's speaking of being loved. He says, my own, know me. You know, they have sweet, intimate, loving fellowship and communion with me and I with them. And the relationship which we enjoy with Jesus is like the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. He says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Notice now verse 15. My own, I know my own, my own know me. Verse 15, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Well, that's simply astonishing. I mean, if you've ever dreamed of a deep, deep, deep relationship, here it is. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. You understand what he's he's saying? Jesus is likening the believer's relationship, our relationship with him, and his relationship with us, to his own relationship with his Father. And there is no deeper, no more satisfying relationship in all the universe than the eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And the simple truth here is that Jesus in love knows His own. We in love know Him. The Father in love knows Jesus, and He in love knows the Father. You know, you and I... uh, and and all believers are caught up then in, 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 in the deep, intimate love and affection that is shared between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's astounding. He knows us and we know Him just as the Father knows Him. And He knows the Father. Now someone is bound to say, well now wait a minute. Jesus knows the Father infinitely, doesn't he? Yes. He knows everything there is about the Father, and the Father knows him in the same way. And so you're going to say to me, are you saying then that we know everything there is about Jesus? Oh, what do you think? No. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what Jesus is saying. Then how can Jesus say that we know him as he knows the Father, and the Father knows him? Well, obviously what Jesus says here cannot mean that the relationship we have with Him is just as close and as intimate as the relationship with the Father. I mean, that would be impossible. Because the Father and the Son know each other in an infinite, perfect, holy intimacy with absolutely no barriers between them. But we are finite and and sinful, which create barriers on our end to our intimate knowledge of Him. And so what does Jesus mean? Well, simply that our relationship with him is patterned after and is a reflection of the relationship between the Father and the Son. And as one man said, it is a relationship of mutual knowledge, a reciprocal knowledge that is not superficial but intimate. And that's right. I mean, it's, it's a knowledge and an affection so profound, so spiritual, so heavenly, so intimate, so blessed that no other analogy was possible to do it justice and as the father knows the son and as the son knows the father so Christ knows his sheep and so the sheep know him I mean how utterly amazing that our intimate relationship with Jesus is likened to the intimate relationship the father, son and Holy Spirit have and enjoy with one another And then notice the last part of verse 15. Jesus says again, I lay down my life for the sheep. I mean, any man can die, but only Jesus can lay down his life for the sheep. Our Lord did not lay down his life as a martyr for the truth or as a moral example of self-sacrifice. Rather, he laid down his life for the sheep his sheep, all that the Father had given him. And he died that we might live. Because, and I'm sure you understand, that by nature, his sheep are dead in trespasses and sin. And if Jesus, God's divinely appointed substitute, had not died for his sheep, There would be no spiritual and eternal life for us. But he did. He loved us. And he gave himself for us. And that, loved ones, is the fountainhead out of which the gospel flows. But that's not all. Not only did Jesus love us and give himself for us, Jesus came as a gift of the Father's love. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. God's undeserved, gracious, sovereign, inexpressible love is the fountainhead out of which everything flows to humanity from God above. And you know, I, I, sometimes uh, guys, and I can speak to guys as a guy, I mean, sometimes guys, they get uncomfortable talking about love, all this mushy stuff, and they, they kind of get the idea that, well, this is something for women. And, yeah, well, you know, yeah, I love God. I love God, you know, my macho kind of way. And Let me tell you something. Uh, if you have any kind of thoughts like that about loving Christ, uh, I would wonder if you have ever truly loved him. If somehow you think you're too manly or too macho to love Christ and love him with all of your being, and you're uncomfortable talking about loving Christ and Him loving us and having a, an intimate relationship with Him. I, I, I would truly wonder uh, if you have a relationship with Him at all. Because to know Him is to love Him. I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. You know, just before he was arrested, Jesus gave an extended discourse to his disciples in Matthew chapter 25. And in this discourse, he pictured himself on his heavenly throne on the day of final judgment. And he said that he will sit on his throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. All the nations, great and small, everyone, all be gathered before him as he sits upon the throne. And then he's going to separate people from uh, from separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he's going to place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And to the sheep on his right, he's going to say, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Oh, what a blessed day that will be. That's to the sheep, his sheep, those who knew him and loved him. But then he's going to say to the goats on his left, all of those who... Resisted him and rejected him. He's going to say to all the goats on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's not a fairy tale. This is going to happen. This is the ultimate and final separation of the sheep and the goats, the the separation of those who love the Lord Jesus and those who resisted him and rejected him. And so that begs the question, you know, are you one of the sheep of God? Are you one of his sheep? Are you one of those to whom Jesus will say, Come, you are are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. You know, are you one of the sheep of God? Or are you a goat? We're not born sheep. We're not born loving God. You don't love God because you grew up in a Christian home. You can't love God until you receive a new heart. So we're not born sheep. We're not born loving God. We're born in sin. By nature, we are children of wrath like all the rest of mankind. And not only are we born in sin, we've also sinned against God, our Creator, and we are therefore deserving of nothing but death and eternal condemnation because the wages of sin is death. That's reality. But Jesus... I mean, the good news of what we've heard today, Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down His life for the sheep. He died for His sheep to rescue us from from sin and death and hell. Again, that's the whole meaning of the cross. Jesus came into this world to live a perfect sinless life, the life that you and I could never live. And then to die in our place to rescue us from the sin that would damn us for all eternity and forever shut us out of the presence of God in heaven. And so on the cross, all our sin and guilt and shame was laid upon Jesus. He willingly died in our place and for our sin, taking the punishment we deserved, so that we might be set free from sin and its penalty to love and worship and serve God. That's why we're here. Jesus laid down His life for the sheep. There's no one else who could do so. There was no one else good enough to do so. I mean, why would anyone refuse to come to a shepherd like this? Why would anyone in their right mind refuse to come to the good shepherd who loved them and gave himself for them. Why? Sin and rebellion and self-centeredness and self-focus because it's all about self. That's why. I mean, why would anyone not want a shepherd like him? It's because they love their sin. They love their sin. and They have the the rebellious attitude of heart that the scribes and pharisees had when they said we will not have this man rule over us. In other words, they're not going to submit their life to Christ. I mean, where do you stand with respect to Jesus Christ the good shepherd? I and mean, are you one of his sheep? If you're not, then then my my plea, literal plea would be to you this morning, Come to Christ, come to the great shepherd of our souls, come to the great shepherd of the sheep. You know, may the Lord open your heart and show you your sin so that you can confess it to him and and receive his forgiveness and surrender your heart and life to him so that you too may find him to be the good shepherd of your soul. Jesus said, I am the door, and he is. No one comes to the Father except through Him. You don't come through your parents or your grandparents. You don't come through good works or giving or being moral on the outside or going to church. None of those things make you a Christian and never will. The only way to become a Christian and enter into heaven is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and He is. He is the beautiful shepherd. There's no one like him. He is gentle and lowly of heart and and is kind to all who come to him. And he's saying to to everyone who who doesn't believe, come, come, come that you might have life. Are you one of his sheep? I mean, have you come to him? If not, we pray that you will do so today.
0: On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website, at calvarybiblepc.org calvarybiblepc.org Thank you for listening and may God richly bless you It's your love that makes me see It's your word that comforts me By your blood we have been saved